Hello, friends. Welcome to In With The Old. We are a podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's Word, and rediscovering the Old Testament for the life of faith. I'm your co-host, Dr. Tim Howe, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Brian Koning. How are you, Brian? I'm doing really well today, Tim. Excited for our episode. Well, Brian, I'm glad you're doing well today. Uh, we are in episode eight of our first series, and uh, today we're going to be talking about Scripture interpreting Scripture. And uh, Brian, as, as we come to the Bible, of course, we want to read the Bible the, the very best we can using the best tools that are available to us. Uh, but especially as we come as believers, reading this as God's Word, we come with this fundamental assumption that God gives us a Word that is consistent, uh, and as Protestants, we've had a, a principle of interpretation, which is this, Scripture should be used to interpret Scripture. And so as we think about the Bible, a lot of times there are some thorny issues. There are some things that, hey, on the surface might seem to kind of grind against each other. But of course, we're coming to this with the conviction that God's Word is consistent, and therefore we can use the Bible to help resolve and clarify issues that we encounter in interpretation. Um so just to set this up for our listeners, and then we're going to kick it over to Brian in just a minute, because Brian, you know this, this is one of your areas of specialty. This is something that you studied in your doctoral studies and your dissertation, so we're going to let you help us out and really take the wheel for this discussion. Mm-hmm. But here's what we need to know, listeners. The, the Old Testament was written over a long period of time. And uh, if we take Mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch or the Torah um, and the early date of Moses' life, then we've got about a thousand-year period of writing. And, And think about that for a moment. Many different documents over a thousand years, and we're looking for consistency because we believe that all of those were breathed out by God himself. And so as we think about the writing and as we think about how these authors compose their work, here's what we know. Over the course of that thousand years— some of those later authors are going to have access to earlier material. And that earlier material, and Brian, I think you would agree with this, especially the Torah, but really any earlier written material, is used by later authors uh, in terms of how they think about the world and in terms of how they compose their own text. So we have this idea that Scripture over the thousand-year period of writing of the Old Testament builds on itself, and later texts will actually use earlier texts in order to make their point, in order to make their argument. And this idea of a later text or a later author using the work of an earlier author is known as, and here's kind of a technical word for you, intertextuality, intertextuality, when a later text uses an earlier text. So, uh, Brian, that just kind of set the stage for us. And in in the end, by the way, we're going to come back around to why this is important for you. Why is this necessary for us as we read Scripture and seek to be the best readers we can be? We're going to come back to that to the end. Uh, But, Brian, can you just give us a brief rundown of intertextuality? When was this word uh, coined? How How is it important? What does it mean? Can you just give us a rundown of intertextuality? Sure, and thanks for that introduction, Tim. I think you set the scene really well. And yeah, listeners, this will get a little bit nerdy, but it's going. we're going to bring it back around that this really matters. So intertextuality, as Tim defined it, is actually a fairly recent term in literary studies, that is the study of literature, how we write, how we put things together. It comes from an author named Julia Kristeva. Uh, she's a French author, a post-structuralist. She, she's actually still alive. She's in her 80s. Uh, and she coined this term for us in 1969. And the term might be new, but the idea most certainly isn't. Kristeva, building on the prior work of Mikhail Bakhtin, 
looked at writing and she said, you know, when we come to create texts, when you write a letter, when I write a letter, when you write a book, when I write a book, we are rarely going to create new language to express ourselves, right? Not many of us are Shakespeare, who's just going to make up words on the fly. When you listen to this podcast, these are all words Tim and I are using that exist in a vocabulary somewhere. And if they don't, it's simply because I think, at least for me, I mispronounce something. But uh, Christina's <laughs> basic idea was that we always assert meaning in relation to other things that already have meaning. When I write a book, I'm going to use words and ideas already expressed in other texts. And that's actually how we can understand them. I don't have to learn a new language every time I pick up a new book. We're just going to use things that are already out there. And so she coined this intertextuality, or how texts interrelate with one another. And while it's a very simple idea, of course, I'm using English, I'm using English vocabulary to communicate, the ways in which I as an author or you as an author might use other texts are actually quite complex and complicated. So intertextuality, just to maybe help us conceptually see what we're talking about, can come in about three forms or three very common forms. So the first would be just direct quotation, right? Tim, our school days might be behind us, but I'm sure we always remember writing those term papers, having to have a certain number of sources, certain number of quotations, right? Do you still, do you <laughs> oh, still have yeah. nightmares about that? I know it's been a couple years since we've been out of school, but I still sometimes wake up and go, I, I have a paper due, don't I? <laughs> I owe someone something and it hasn't been turned in. Yeah, no, I definitely have those dreams. And it, it's kind of that old maxim before you are, uh, you know, before you're worth listening to, you've got to learn to listen to other people. So yeah, yeah, that's why we encourage quoting, right? You've got to learn before you can speak. Exactly. And quoting with citation, uh, being a professor mm -hmm. that teaches a lot of people coming back to college for the first time, it kind of triggers me. Uh, <laughs> not many of us know how to quote with citation. But um, when I'm using a quote, right, I'm put those nice little quotation markers in English, and I'm indicating mm -hmm. to my readers that what you're about to read is not original to me, but I've taken it from somewhere else. Well, that's intertextuality. I could be using that quote to prove a point. It could be a viewpoint I'm going to argue against. It could be just an interesting turn of phrase that I want you, my listener, to uh, or reader rather, to deal with. But all these are direct forms of intertextuality, quotation marks. And remember that phrase, listeners, quotation marks, because that's actually going to be a problem for us in the Old Testament, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Mm. So we can have direct quotes. We can also have something called an allusion, which is something that's not a direct quote, but it's an intentional callback to something that already exists. This usually draws upon cultural understanding. So let's say, for instance, you're reading a story that I've written, and I have a character that walks up to another character, and they're introduced, and he says, call me Ishmael. Well, I wouldn't necessarily have to put that in direct quotes, but you as a good reader would probably know, well, call me Ishmael, that's actually a famous line from Herman Melville's Moby Dick, right? It's something kind of idiomatic, it's something that's in our cultural uh, milieu, as it were. We understand that I'm taking that from something else. I, I'm going to be maybe using that for a variety of literary reasons. Uh, if I say, may the force be with you. Well, you know, that's obviously Star Wars, <laughs> right? Um, so I may not actually have a quote or a citation, but you clearly know as, a, as someone in our culture that, oh, that's borrowing from something else and maybe playing off that other source. 
Again, listeners, we'll, we'll tie this all back up in a moment, but I want you to remember what I said. Illusions draw off of cultural understanding. This is, again, mm. maybe going to be a problem for us when we try to dig into the Old Testament's intertextuality. Uh, and then third and finally, uh, depending on the author you read, a more subtle form of intertextuality is something called trace or echo, I believe is the term Richard B. Hayes, who's one of the main mm-hmm. Christian theologians that brings up this idea. And this is something that's even more subtle than something like a call me Ishmael. If I, for mm. instance, Tim said, I want to tell you a story, Tim. It was a dark and stormy night, right? If I start <laughs> with that phrase, you'd maybe mentally kind of roll your eyes like, oh, that's cliche, right? Well, mm. I'm pulling off of a common cultural idea of stories. It sets the scene instantly in your mind. What you might not know, and listeners, what you might not know, is that actually is a quote. Uh, Edward Buller Lytton's Paul Clifford actually began with, it was a dark and stormy light. Much later, Madeline LaIngle's A Wrinkle in Time begins with, it was a dark and stormy night. Now, you may not have known that. That might just be helpful trivia. But all of us are aware that stories don't actually begin with, it was a dark and stormy night, and specifically not true stories. So by using that phrase, I've pulled up a lot of images in your mind. I've indicated a little bit of what I'm going to do. Even if I haven't indicated a source, you know I am playing around with other texts and stories in your culture and mine. Now that's the the nerdy part, so thank you for bearing with us, listeners. Uh, But these things and many more come in to shape our view of intertextuality, how texts can play around with themselves. When we move over to the Bible, I already mentioned him once, but Richard B. Hayes is one of the big authors in this area. He wrote Echoes of Scripture and Paul. That was the, mm. the, the seminal work. It's certainly not the only one, but it's the one that really, I think, popularized this discussion. And he was looking at the Pauline letters in the New Testament and said, hey, Paul often is using the Old Testament. Now, how does he use it? And he uses it Hay says, in a variety of ways, using lots of different things. And so we see this concept in play very often in scholarship in talking about how New Testament gospels, epistles, how they deal with the Old Testament text. That is certainly a very useful and interesting discussion. But something that is more and more starting to gain attention is the fact that, as Tim just said to us, the Old Testament was written over a thousand-year period of time. Think Right now, listeners, a thousand years in the past, how much history has existed? We know this, by the way, that Israel dealt with their prior revelation, even without having to go to intertextuality. Think of the stories in Kings. When the copy of the law, right, the Torah, the first five books, when that copy is found, think of what happens. They read it, they begin evaluating their culture, and things change. And so we know that they're dealing with this text time after time. And what we're starting to pay more and more attention to is the fact that the Old Testament writers, especially the latter ones, looked at Mm -hmm. prior revelation and began to quote, allude, and even echo those prior revelations to make sense of the text for their time. I'm actually looking, Tim, on my desk. I have the work of Gary Schnedeger. Uh, Mm -hmm. Apologies, Dr. Gary. I've never heard your last name pronounced out loud, so if that's incorrect, my deepest apologies. But... um, he just wrote a, a year and a half ago, Old Testament Use of Old Testament, and it's a book seeking to chronicle listeners all these various uses of the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament. Do you know how long that book is, Tim? Yeah. It's, what, 700, 800 pages, something like that? 
oh, we need to go higher than that. It's almost oh. 1,100 pages long. It's a phenomenal oh book, by the way. I, I had the privilege to review it for a journal, um, and it's a wonderful text. And the length of it should impress upon all of us that when we think of the Old Testament being self-referential, this is not just something that happens maybe once or twice. This is a consistent handling of the text, and that's quite important. The people of Israel, when they viewed the revelation of God, continued to engage with it, continued to wrestle with it generation to generation, even as new revelation was coming out. They didn't just go, well, Moses was the old stuff, but now we got Isaiah mm. writing. Now we've got Ezra writing. Like we, we, we can ignore Moses now, right? No, these works are never put down, but instead engaged with and brought forward time after time. Can I jump in here for a second? Because I, I, I think for our listeners, you might be thinking, okay, so what if, if a later author quotes an earlier author or a later text quotes an earlier text? Um, here's, here's why that's important. Because they are doing it on purpose and they are assuming that their audience is going to understand that's what they're doing. So, uh, for instance, and Brian, in this situation, you are the master and I am the Padawan. So uh, I love the explanation, but using that reference, even that I just used, you quoted Star Wars earlier, I just used a Star Wars reference. Well, guess what? If, if our listeners understand Star Wars, they're going to know master and Padawan refers to a Jedi master and a Padawan learner. I'm using an image or a metaphor that some of our audience will understand, some won't. But here's the point. If you don't understand that, you're going to be lost in the conversation. And we've all experienced that whenever, say, there's an inside joke or there's, you know, someone quotes maybe a movie or a play or whatever it might be, you know, a cultural artifact. Someone quotes it and we don't get it. We feel kind of lost in the woods. We feel kind of left out of the conversation. Well, when the Old Testament writers echo, allude, quote, use in, in whatever way, earlier revelation, they are most of the time assuming that their audience is going to understand that. So if we miss this, we really do lose something. If we don't understand how that's happening, then what we're going to do is we're going to read a text that's using an older text, but we're going we're gonna to miss the point. We're going to miss the, the way that they're intending to, to build up their argument or the way that they're meaning to be understood. So it, this is more than just an academic point. This is something that as we come to the text, we've got to have our eyes and our mind and our, and our heart ready to say, oh, okay. And, and again, this is where the New Testament can come alive. I'm, I know I've experienced this, and I'm sure our listeners have too. When you realize how the New Testament is using the Old Testament, it, it's just like a light bulb sometimes goes off. But the same thing is true when we realize how the Old Testament is using itself and how that story builds over time. That's how we're truly going to get to the heart of what the author was saying. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind. It's not just academic. This is very, very practical. And this also explains, Tim, why we're handling this as episode eight and not episode two. We've already, mm -hmm. at, right, listeners, we've already walked through this kind of a building appreciation of the Old Testament by saying we need to take off Sunday school eyes. We need to start understanding history a little bit, how narrative is put together. Well, why? Well, because of what, Tim, you just said. Oftentimes, the writers are going to assume their listeners are quite competent, engaged in their culture, and will pick up on subtle clues for how they're mm -hmm. linking these texts together. And so we, if we're going to be following along or tracking along and not being lost, have to also work on picking up those clues. 
So that's why this episode is coming kind of right here as the series is winding down, because it definitely has to build off a lot of the skills we've already learned and developed. So excellent point. And Tim, my young Padawan, um, I, I, love, I love that example, right? Because friends, if you don't know Star Wars, uh, you wa- haven't been living under a rock, but you definitely haven't been on social media. <laughs> Go watch Star Wars. Yeah. Even if you don't like Star Wars, and that's totally fine, um, it's so everywhere. <laughs> Right. It's mm-hmm. somewhat hard to get away from. But think of if you could get in a time machine and go back 50 years, those terms would be meaningless, even though we're speaking the same language, because culture yeah. is necessary to understand these reference. And that's what we're going mm-hmm. to use as the segue to get into understanding intertextuality in the Old Testament, because we have mm-hmm. a couple obstacles. Let's start with the biggest one. The Old Testament does directly quote from itself, but... In your Bible and mine, when we read these, we'll see them in quotation marks. But you know something interesting? Neither Greek nor Hebrew has quotation marks. All of those are editorial decisions. So your translation, my translation, those uh, editors, those revisers, those translators, they have added those in. And that is important Mm -hmm. to know. When you see these marks, so quotation marks, these are things added by the editors. They are not part of the quote-unquote inerrant text of Scripture. These are choices, uh, and usually very good and very reliable choices. But realize that they are choices that we've had to make because the text itself isn't going to have a nice quote. At best, what you get in the Old Testament sometimes is a phrase like, just as was written in the Torah, or as it is said in the books of Moses, something like that. Um, for an example, mm-hmm. this listeners, you could go to Nehemiah 10.34 or Exodus 39.7. Both have this kind of marker, and they're both referring back to Exodus 28.12. They're quoting from it. Um, so you'll see the text sometimes tell you, as is written, well, that probably means it's picking up right from a prior book. But those are not actually how the Old Testament primarily refers to itself. So remember, in intertextuality, you could have direct quote, but you could also have an illusion. And an illusion, like the Master and Padawan, this is the primary (laughs) way the Old Testament self-references. It primarily Mm -hmm. is going to draw on images, ideas, and it's going to assume that you and I know the culture. So take, for instance, if you go to Psalm 50, verse 4. It's going to talk about God summoning heaven and earth to testify against his people, okay? Well, you and I, listeners, if you've been following along with us, actually know that that is a reference to a prior book because we talked about this in our very last episode. Deuteronomy is a suzerainty vassal treaty. It has witnesses, which are heaven and earth. And guess what God is doing here in the Psalms, in Psalm 50? The author is playing on that idea. God is the one who can summon witnesses to testify against his people for their unfaithfulness, because these witnesses are part of the record. So many times, Tim, as as you get into this field and as you begin reading books on intertextuality, uh, one of the big things that definitely bubbles up to the surface is we have to be competent readers. We have to be broad readers of the Old Testament because the authors often are very subtle. They're going to use Mm -hmm. maybe a key word, a key phrase, a key image, But they're rarely going to give you or I a direct full quote. Instead, they're going to take one element of it and link it together with whatever new argument they are using. Um, And Mm -hmm. off of that, we should appreciate that the biblical authors are going to use quotes just as we use quotes or allusions today. 
for a variety of Mm -hmm. reasons and in a variety of ways. One of my favorite examples is Habakkuk 2.4. If you pull out your English translation, Habakkuk 2.4 usually reads, the righteous shall live by faith. It's, I think, I'm doing this off the cuff, Tim, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it the most quoted verse in the New Testament or most cited? Yeah. Because it's cited three. Yes, I believe that's correct. It's cited three distinct times, twice by Paul and once in the book of Hebrews, uh, mm-hmm. which, hey, we're an Old Testament podcast. We don't have to argue about who the author of that book is, uh, but it's, <laughs> it's Luke. Anyway, uh, <laughs> just drop that out there. Writing for um, Paul, I would add. Writing for Paul. But oh, there. Anyway. Oh, boy. Anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you've got this one passage used three times. Uh, go look up the references. Any study Bible worth its salt will show you if you go to Habakkuk 2, 4, the three uses in the New Testament. The interesting thing is Paul and the author of Hebrews don't use Habakkuk 2, 4 in the same way. Paul doesn't even use the term the same way or the the citation the same way in his (laughs) books. He's using this to prove different points because in context, and actually this is what we'll deal with next week a little bit, um, but the context of Habakkuk 2.4 is interesting. There's a lot of theological threads that tie through it. And in fact, even the translation, the righteous shall live by faith, is probably not the right translation of that text, although it is an accurate summary of the message of the text. A better translation is probably the righteous shall live because he is faithful or it is faithful, uh, referring to the word of God. So just be aware of that, too, as we begin to be readers and seeing how the Bible links to itself. It's going to be quite varied. This isn't just like, hey, it's always going to be a direct quotation. It's always going to be emphasizing the same point. Just like common readers today would expect quotes to be used in a variety of manners, so the ancient text is used. And I think that helps us, Tim, when we can come to this text and go, hey— they're people like me. <laughs> they are wrestling with ideas. They're taking images. They're trying to craft this narrative, this understanding of reality of who God is, who we are. Um, and they're going to link to their own past and tell a story of who they are. So this is kind of biblical yeah. intertextuality. We rarely are going to have direct quotes. There are some, but they're the quotation marks themselves are editorial editions. More often, the text is assuming you and I are competent readers and it's going to just drop an illusion. And we are going to have to put in the spade work to really see where those links are. Here, here's another example that I think might be helpful. And, and Brian, you can jump in on this too in a second. But like the Psalms are a great example of the assumption that the biblical writers make in the fact that the Psalms assume that we know the history of Israel. They assume that we know all the things that happened. The Psalms are full of intertextual echoes or quotes or allusions. Uh, so for instance, Psalm 103, and I'm, I'm looking here at Psalm 103, verse 8, it says, quoting Exodus 34, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, in the mm-hmm. translation I'm reading from. So that's, that's quoting God's statement in Exodus 34 to Moses when he declares his name and then he states exactly the same thing. I'm slow to anger, gracious, compassionate, and all the rest. So Psalm 103 assumes that we know that's a quote from Exodus. Uh, The author of the psalm also knows that, or assumes rather, that we understand the history and the meaning of that, that he's not just taking it from nowhere, but that he's quoting God himself. 
But an example of an illusion would be in that same text. Later on in Psalm 103, uh, the author says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Okay, well, it may not be a direct quote, but it's it's alluding to the character of God that we see on display beforehand. So, a- again, there's, there's kind of, Brian, a beauty factor, isn't there, that it's like later authors, they take what's already been given to them in the Scriptures, they take it and they turn it into song, or they take it and they, they use it to, to build upon itself. And maybe in one sense, this might be a rough analogy, but it might be helpful. Um, when we watch a movie— um, when we watch a movie, and especially a, a movie that's well done, it's, it's a lot of times going to have an underscore. Um, it's going to have music underneath it. And sometimes when a certain character is introduced, uh, that person has uh, music that's associated with that character. Well, the best movies, they're, they're movies that take those themes, and then those same themes are used throughout the story, and sometimes the themes change a little bit, and sometimes it's just kind of light in the background to remind you of something. But I think it's it's roughly similar, where the authors are almost, you know, giving us this, this, this melody that's kind of underneath the text, so that when we read something, we're meant to associate it with something that happened earlier. We're meant to, you know, whenever the, the Shire theme music comes on, when Frodo and Sam talking about cultural illusions, right? When they're yeah, in Mordor and the, and the Shire music comes on when they're, you know, on Mount Doom or whatever it is, you know, these, these themes are woven throughout, and that's what the biblical authors are doing. They're beautifully using prior quotations and echoes to remind us of the continuity of the story, that it's unfolding. This is something we've seen before, but it continues to move. It continues to develop. And, uh, and so, yeah, those texts can be used in various ways. But my point is just this. We, we do the same thing in one sense. We connect dots. We kind of relate one thing to another, but we do it in different ways. Yeah, and the Psalms, Tim, are a great place to go to see that. Just as you were talking, my mind even went to uh, Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is, assumes you've read yes, Genesis yes. 1. It's a commentary on it and yeah. helps us actually focus in. Because, right, we can get into debates, and we've intentionally not gotten into it in this series, right? How do you even read Genesis 1? But <laughs> while that could be a contentious matter, it's quite uh, instructive to read Psalm 8 because that's David's musings on that passage. And what's yeah. his key takeaway? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is mm. your name in all the earth. And to see that that's the focus, like that really helps us push the story forward. What was that story meant to communicate? Right. And that doesn't obliterate all discussions on that passage. Certainly not. But it helps us make sure that we keep the major points, the major points. So, yeah, the Psalter is definitely a great place to see some of these intertextual ideas and, and interplay at work. Now, segueing off that then, Tim, this has kind of been technical to this point, let's start trying to make this more practical. What's some of the deeper value? What are some of the takeaways we can say of going, hey, it's important to know that the Bible does reference itself, that this text Mm -hmm. is used and picked up uh, by later authors. Uh, Walk us in on that a little bit. What's some of the value we can see here? Yeah, yeah. No, this and this is so important because on the one hand, okay, great if we see echoes, allusions, quotations, all the rest, but, but how do we apply it? The first thing I want to say is 
to me, it, it just speaks to the idea that the Bible itself is is truly alive. And and we don't mean that in like some weird, you know, like no, we, we mean that in the sense that God was continuously breathing out his word through the individuals who wrote it. And as he was doing it, he was building this living narrative, this story, and he brought every new generation in. In other words, they weren't just living on the revelation of the past, they were building upon that revelation and they were finding themselves in that story as part of God's grand narrative. And as God was breathing out scripture, they they were building on uh, all of the things, all of the acts, the wonders, the miracles that they saw, saw God do in the past. They related God's character to themselves in their day. So I think we can appreciate the text better. Also, uh, I think we can just uh, have a greater appreciation of the beauty of Scripture, that that God's Word to them, and this this is to me, uh, you know, I was talking to someone about this the other day, Brian. You know, we have all kinds of cultural artifacts to entertain us. You know, we have our phone. We can get on ESPN mm-hmm. and check out what the the new score is. Or we have TVs in front of us, and we all know we have way too much screen time. Or we listen to podcasts to pass the time, or audiobooks, or whatever it might be. It's like we are constantly bombarded with information. We're constantly entertained. But think about this. In their day, in their culture, their entertainment, what they did to pass the time, that their self-identity, it was all centered around the story of Scripture. They didn't have TV. They didn't have mm. smartphones. I mean, obviously, duh, but my point is not just that. My point is they found their fundamental identity, their entertainment, uh, what they read, what they what they used to, to see the world and to evaluate their own behavior and to relate to God. It was the Bible. And so for these people, the Bible was, was so alive and so real so it was natural for them as they as they pinned new things what else would they have to build it on except that which they had already learned and they had already known and for us and here's where i think the payoff is for us as bible readers if we approach the bible and we say oh i know this is is you know i've 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 known this i know this text i know this verse i know this passage and we talked about this Brian in an earlier episode if we approach it with an i already know attitude we are going to miss the beauty of what the authors were trying to accomplish. We're going to miss the power of how the Bible does build upon itself and ultimately how it points us forward to the coming of Christ. And here's what I love, Brian. Some people will look at the New Testament authors and say they played, you know, kind of loosey-goosey with the text, that, you know, some will critique them and say, well, man, they they are ripping these texts out of context. They're, They're using them in ways that are illegitimate. At which point, my response to that would be, no, they're actually doing the same thing that the Old Testament writers did, which is what? They were relating their day, their time, the events that were going on around them to what they had already learned and known in the Scriptures. In other words, their hermeneutic, or the way they were using the Bible, is the same way that, say, the prophets were using the Bible. They were trying to look to see what God was doing. Or it's the same way that the book of uh, the authors of the Psalter were using the Bible. They were relating what was going on in their day and their time time to the biblical story as it unfolded. And here's one important caveat. We don't believe that God is breathing out Scripture today. It's not as though God gives us new revelation in the form of Scripture. But what we can do is place ourselves in the story and see the Bible as a living text that, yes, developed over time. And we can see how how their understanding grew over time. And in doing so, we can come to just such a greater understanding of the whole. It's kind of like this, to use uh, one last analogy, Brian. 
it, it's kind of like uh, the difference between seeing one episode or one season in a series and seeing the entire the entire series or the entire show. Or to use the same analogy but a different way, um, going back to Star Wars. Okay, if you've seen episode four of Star Wars, that's great, but it's going to make a whole lot more sense when you see episodes four, five, and six. And then you see episodes one, two, and three. And then and here's what I love. Episodes seven, eight, and nine, they, they use all kinds of quotations and allusions and references to former episodes, and they do so in order to continue building the story. I think it's very similar. The Bible builds upon itself, and in that sense, it crescendos eventually to the coming of Christ, uh, where we find all of the promises of God fulfilled. So we are going to enjoy the text so much more. We're going to understand the text so much more when we see how the authors are using the biblical text itself. And piggybacking off that, Tim, I think we also see how vibrant and alive their faith was in this text. When we oh, think yeah. of the, yeah. the ending of the writing of the Old Testament, uh, we said we had about a thousand-year writing period, but the stories of Abram precede Moses by quite a ways. Yes. When we see these later authors still dealing with the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right, the Torah, mm-hmm. you're seeing documents that have existed for millennia. And yet these authors say, but God still speaks. This story is still relevant. Yes. We are still looking for our place yes. in that narrative. And so I, I think that helps enliven us now as people several millennia after the end of the New Testament time. There's a passion in the Old Testament for God's continuing story and trying to see what is the narrative of God. How do I find my place in that? That I think excites me as a reader because I go, I see their passion and I have that same passion. I want to find my place in God's story. How do I do this? How do I engage with it? And seeing the logic, the way the spirit moves them to make some of those connections can help me as I try to bridge the gap between the time then and my world now, because although it's all ancient to us, it wasn't just all ancient to them. They were also having to do this bridge of how does past revelation change my life today? And so I I think that just can excite us as readers and give us some encouragement to keep digging into God's word. Yeah, absolutely. And that that's what we're wanting to do. We're we're wanting to encourage people get in the word and and we can explain it all day long, Brian, but I know you would agree that there's no replacement for reading it. And and this is what I love. Whenever pieces of the Bible come together, whenever you see, "Oh, the author is is using this quote this way or the author is building on this idea that that's already existed." It it just it makes it so much more vivid and, as you said, so much more alive. So we hope as you read the Bible that, that this will be helpful to you. And, uh, and of course, this is what we're going to do next episode. We're going to be trying to kind of bringing these pieces together, and uh, we're going to be looking at Habakkuk and how appreciating the Old Testament and what's come before Habakkuk can actually help us uh, to understand and even apply Habakkuk better to our own lives. Um, so if you have any questions about anything we've talked about thus far in the podcast, you can email us with those questions and you can email us at this uh, address in with the old podcast at outlook.com. Again, that's in with the old podcast at outlook.com. If you've got questions about the Old Testament, we'd love to tackle those. And, uh, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much. If you're enjoying this, if it's helpful to you, please share it with a friend. We'd love for our audience to grow and to help as many people as possible. But until we meet next time, stay cool and stay old. <laughs>